Well, you're familiar with the phrase, oh, he's a natural, or, oh, she's just, she's just, she's just a natural. Now, when you hear that phrase, what, what comes to mind? Uh, for me, it's somebody uh, who's able to do something with ease, uh, without the struggle that other people maybe have, and it just sort of look at them, and it, and it just sort of kind of looks effortless for them. And we think, man, you know, if only I could do that. You know, they, they just, they're just a natural at it. It just kind of flows out of them. It just looks so easy for them. Maybe you've had that word uh, applied to you, and maybe with sports. Oh, he's, he's just a natural. Mark has often said he married, into, he married Janae and into that whole family. And he says, they're just all natural at sports. They're just naturally. Maybe, maybe somebody has said that to you about, about music. Oh, she's just a natural. And we know people like that, right? They just kind of look and they watch somebody play an instrument. And the next thing you know, they're up there and they can be in the Grand Ole Opry or something. They never played it before. And they're just a natural. It just kind of flows out of them. And maybe for some of you, you'll be called that way because... You just flit around socially bringing joy wherever you go. And you're just a natural at connecting with people and encouraging with people and making friends. And uh, 10 minutes after you arrive in a brand new place, you've got three brand best of friends. Uh, just, just a natural. Uh, you know, I've had that word, that phrase applied to me. He's a natural. Uh, Gene Kraus about funerals. Apparently I'm a natural about being around dead people. I <laughs> I think it's because I can't info offend them. I think that's what the thing is. But I'll take whatever I can get. But you, you know what I'm talking about, though, right? He's a natural. She's a natural. Now, I was thinking about that phrase, that she's a natural, as I was praying through the passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying this morning. And here's the question that came to me as I, as I read through uh, this passage in the context in which it's found. And here's the question. The question is, how realistic is it for us to expect people to say of us when it comes to living a Christ-like life or to live a Christian life, to live out what we believe, how realistic is it for us, for people to say of you in your workplace, to say of me in my neighborhood, oh, he's just a natural at this Christian living thing. She's just a natural at responding the way that Jesus responds to circumstances. All too often it seems to me that it's, it's a struggle, not something that's natural. Much more likely to say of me, well, he tries hard, at least some of the time. But why is that? Why is it that, that it seems like for us, it's, 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 it's not a natural, it seems, to respond as Jesus does to the various circumstances that come about in our life. All too often we find ourselves, don't we? We find ourselves disappointed in how we lived out our faith in various circumstances of life. We find ourselves disappointed in the church and how the church responds to things or is seen by society. And to be honest, sometimes we find ourselves disappointed when we think about other Christians and our interaction with them. And it's not so much like, well, they're just a natural. It's like, man, why can't we just get this together? I think that today's passage will help us first of all identify why it is that so often this living a Christ-like life is such a struggle for us. And then not only just to identify those things, but to move on and maybe find some things that we can do here where the Spirit can transform us so that it becomes much more natural for us to bear witness to who Jesus is by our life and by our very being. 
I just think that we don't think he or she is a natural often enough. And here's what I think, having meditated on this passage. I think it's at least in part because we focus on the wrong part of the equation. It's very easy for us to sort of focus on the rules and to begin to just sort of grit our teeth and try just a little bit harder to live out the rules. Don't steal. I mean, you can see them. We're going to look at them next week, actually. You can see them in Psalm verse 25. You know, uh, don't lie. Don't steal. Don't fly off the handle when things tick you off. Don't be lazy. Don't slander other people. Don't be a gossip. We'll get to that stuff next week, but, but here's what I notice in this passage is that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he's going to talk about uh, this whole Christian life thing, he doesn't start with the rules and regulations. He doesn't start with saying, hey, try a little bit harder to be a bit more honest. Try a little bit harder not to gossip about people. Try a little bit harder to be a gracious person. He doesn't begin there. What he begins with is transformation. Is encountering Christ in such a way that we are transformed so that those Christ-like attitudes and actions become rather natural. So when it comes to being natural, this is sort of what I, what I boiled it down to, is don't stick to the rules, be transformed. When it comes to our life and living out this Christian witness, don't worry so much about the rules and regulations and can I live up to this and I should beat myself up a little bit more. No, don't focus so much on that end. Focus so much more on the other side of the equation, the beginning of the equation of being transformed by Jesus himself. Now, let's read the passage and we'll have to work a little bit to come up with that. And so, but just kind of as we go through it, just, just see if you can see what I'm talking about. So Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 17, we saw a couple of weeks ago how we're encouraged, you know, to, to grow in Christ. And then, and this is how he carries on. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality and so to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted or being rotted through by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness, right living, and holiness. All right, let's work our way through this. Think about this whole thing about how is it that we can be a set of you or they're just a natural in living out this Christ-like character. Paul begins by saying, listen, I insist on it on the Lord. You know, it's quite interesting in how he begins, isn't it? So I tell you this, no, 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 actually I insist on it. And what he does, he just sort of starts off with a word that's just kind of, normal. hey, let me just tell you this. And he stops and he thinks, hang on a minute. This is a bit more important. This is a bit more critical than just something I want to casually mention. 
I want to insist upon it. I want to make sure that you understand that this is critical instruction. If you want to become the human being and the community that God wants you to become, then what I'm about to write to you is absolutely critical that you take it and you put it in your life. I say to you, no, actually, I insist. It's a word that means, you know, if you don't follow this instruction, there's bad consequences. That's kind of what the, what the word means. And so he starts off with a rather, with a rather strange things. And he says, no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, here's the tricky thing. They were Gentiles. Gentiles, of course, are people who are, who are not Jewish, right? So it's anybody that's not a, a national-born Jew, they're Gentiles. That's you and that's me. And he's saying to these Ephesian people, most of whom were, Christ, were, were uh, Gentiles, listen, don't live as the Gentiles live. Well, that's kind of a weird thing because they were still Gentiles in that sense. But what he's trying to say is that, listen, you need to understand something. That when you become somebody who follows Jesus, your entire being is transformed. You are changed into something that you were not before. Your complete identity, however it is that you identified yourself before, whatever you said, the core things about you were before, that's kind of irrelevant compared to who you are in Jesus. This is your new identity. This is who you are and to live out. And then he goes on and he gives a bunch of negative words about how the Gentiles or people who are not followers of Jesus are described. He says, let me tell you the Gentile way of thinking and living or the non-Christian way. It's futile, it's dark, it's ignorant of God, it's hard-hearted, there's no sensitivity it's giving over to sensuality. It's full of an insatiable desire for all things selfish. And it demands the absolute right to satisfy whatever desire you may have. Now, think about that for a minute. Think about hearing those words if you don't find yourself describing yourself as a Christian. Like if you've not yet come uh, to, to allow yourself to be embraced by the love and the grace of God, how do those words, how would those words strike you? This, this kind of negative critique. You know what? As I, as I read those things, I thought to myself, man, that sounds arrogant. That just sounds so arrogant. For Christians to say, oh yeah, yeah, we're Christians, but, but this is what everybody else is like. It, it, it's got this whole thing about, about being holier than thou. Of the sort of sense that maybe because we're followers of Jesus, maybe we're just a little bit better than everybody else. And, and then, of course, what that does is it leads to the charge of hypocrisy, doesn't it? Because we know that the airwaves are filled with Christian leaders who have fallen. Seems like every second month, some major well-known Christian preacher, teacher, apologist, whatever messes up and does all this stuff that it says that the Gentiles live by. And I thought, man, you know, we can sound so arrogant. And we can open ourselves up for the charge of hypocrisy so easily. Because I know lots of people who are not followers of Jesus that those, that those words don't describe at all. 
Because they're kind and they're generous and, and they're hospitable and, 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 they, and they give and all of these different things. So I, I was really wrestling with this whole thing about this transformation, what the difference is and, and sounding arrogant and, and being, you know, all, all those things. But I was really helped out by a New Testament scholar by the name of uh, Frank Tillman. And he pointed out this. Listen, what you need to understand is that these words that are used to describe the Gentiles here, they're by and large the words that the Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic Jews are Jews who lived in the Greek culture. Like Hellenism is Greek, right? So these were Jewish people who lived amongst Greek Gentile people. And these words that are described here, you know what they use those words to describe? The idols of the Greek gods. The idols of the gods of the Romans and of the Greeks. And it's not a complete match, but there's substantial uh, alignments with these words. Let me, I've, got a, I've got a big fancy quote for you here. From, from, better him say it than me. Listen to this. We'll take a look. It is possible to read this description as a blunt claim that unbelievers are simply foolish, stubborn, utterly selfish, and debauched. Right? Easy to read that. This is what non-Christians are like. And it sounds, as I said, kind of arrogant. To read the text this way, however, is to fail to appreciate the subtlety of Paul's language. Paul probably linked the futility of Gentiles' way of thinking to their failure to worship the true God. Because what he's doing is he's saying that, listen, the, the gods that these Gentile people, they don't worship Yahweh. They don't worship Jesus. And so when they look at the gods that these people worship, the idols that they had, these are words that describe those gods. Now, here's the other thing to remember. In Jewish teaching... We end up looking like the idols we worship. It's kind of a fundamental Hebraic understanding of the world. The God that you worship, that's what sooner or later you're going to look like that God. You're going to act like that God. You're going to do this. And so, and so we have this whole kind of a thing. We see this in Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name. We don't sing that song, do we? Do we ever sing that song? Not to us, to your name. Good song. Anyway, talk about being distracted. <laughs> Not to us, but, but to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness, right? This is the God, love and faithfulness, Hesed. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Because you see, because they didn't have idols, right? Jews didn't have idols, and so the Gentile people say, where are their gods? Where's the, where's the temple? There's no, there's no image in the temple. Our God is in heaven. And he does whatever it is that pleases him. But their idols, their gods, their, their statues in the temple, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. And here's the critical verse. They have hands that cannot feel, feet that cannot walk. They can utter, they cannot, nor can they utter sound of their threats. Those who make them, here we go, those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. See, this is the Jewish understanding. 
You become like the God that you worship. Whatever that God is like, you will become like that God. New Testament scholar G.K. Beale, one of his landmark books is, is entitled, We Become What We Worship. I haven't read the book, but I've read quite a bit of Beale and he kind of hints at that uh, in various other parts of his writing. It's this sense throughout Scripture, what Beale does, he goes through Scripture and he says, this is the biblical teaching. Whatever your idol is, that's what you're going to become. Whatever your God is, that's what sooner or later you are going to look like when you look at yourself in the mirror and when other people look at you. And so, and so they, had, they had the goddess of sexuality, Aphrodite. Or the God of wine, earthiness, and sensuality. And so he's saying, listen, if you worship these gods, then sensuality is going to govern you. It's going to consume you. It's going to drive your life. It's going to capture you. And it's going to cost you all kinds of other things. If you, if you worship Mars, the Roman god of war, then before you know it, you're going to be looking like somebody who just seeks power. And who, who says to assert themselves over top of other people through conflict and battle depends what your idol is because depending on who you worship depending on where you want to go pretty soon you're going to look like this we are transformed into the idols or the gods that we pursue that we pursue I've got all kinds of gods I've got a god of leisure because I hate hassle my birthday card from, from Andrew here last November said, Dad, may you have a hassle-free year. Because he knows I just go crazy as soon as there's hassle. Like last night, I go to go to bed. And we, we, our bedroom's in the basement. I go to bed and brush my teeth and get done that. And it's quiet, you know, because Sheena's not there yet. <laughs> like, so not, I don't mean she's snoring. Eh? It's quiet, she's not there yet. And I, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean anything by that. <laughs> Okay, we'll go for lunch, Sheen. How about we go? <laughs> and, I, and I hear... That doesn't sound right. Now, as you know, I'm useless when it comes to things with my hand, but here's what I do know. I know there's not supposed to be water dripping from your bedroom light fixture onto your bed. I go crazy. Because that's going to be a massive amount of hassle right now. Because I've got this idol. And, and, and that idol of, of avoiding hassle, it causes me in my life weird things. Either it causes me to ignore things that I should deal with, and instead it gets into a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, bigger pro pro problem. Or I just get really, really mad and start breaking stuff. Why do I do that? Because I've got an idol in my life. Called an easy free life. I just, want, I just want things to go. I just want things to work out. It just drives me crazy. Why? Those things that my impatience and my breaking things or my ignoring things and, and, and being lazy and not addressing stuff. It's not that those, these aren't the problem. The problem is this idol I have in my life that I want a hassle-free life. Do you, see, do you see how that works out? And so you see, one of the things that we need to realize is that we probably have some idols in our life that make us look like that idol. And when it doesn't work out, we respond wrongly. Maybe social popularity is your idol. And you find yourself in places and with people and doing things that you really don't even want to do. But you see, you've got this idol to be popular. You've got this idol. Maybe your idol is Mars, is power. 
and you find yourself looking for a fight everywhere you go and you can't stand anybody. No one's going to tell me what to do. Because you see, I've got this idol called Mars. I've got this idol called, called power. And I pursue it and before I know it, I begin to look like the God of Mars fighting with everybody. So this is what's going on. So, so, so Paul is saying, listen, you used to be like the Gentiles. You used to worship these other idols. You used to pursue these things in your life. And you found yourself starting to look like some of these gods, some of these idols. And then in verse 20, he flips it around. He says, but listen, that's all changed now. Now you've got a different God. Now you have a different one that you are worshipping. And so you are now going to be transformed into your new God, Jesus. Jesus. And as you worship and as you pursue this new God, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be transformed into a people who are like him. In other words, what Paul does, he gets to verse 20 there and he says, listen, if you've got a new God, that means a new life. A new God means a new life. It means a new identity. And so he goes on, he says, what we need to do is go about learning Christ. We become like him and live out the Christian life. It becomes natural for us to do so. The more I love Jesus, the more I'm intimate with Jesus, the more I learn Jesus, the more I'm transformed by his spirits. And all of a sudden, for each one of us, day by day, hopefully, we begin to respond more like Jesus responds. We begin to initiate more like Jesus initiates on the things that Jesus would initiate. You know, Dallas Willard has this great book. The Divine Conspiracy, it's a book on the Sermon on the Mount. But one of the things that's interesting about that book is he says, listen, you know, we read the Sermon on the Mount and we think, oh man, I could never do that. I can never turn the other cheek. I can never give my shirt instead of a coat. I can never do this. I can never do that. I just don't measure up. But what Dallas Willard does, he says, listen, you need to understand what's going on. What, 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 what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is not giving some standard by which you must live. He's going to say, listen, I'm going to so transform you that it's going to be natural for you to turn the other cheek. Ooh. It's going to be natural for you to go the extra mile. It's going to be natural for you if somebody asks you for your coat to give them a shirt as well. Because I'm going to so change you that this is how you're going to live out your life. You are going to take on the very character of God. That's the fruit of the Spirit, right? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, guys, all that stuff. That's nothing less than the description of the character of God. And he's saying, listen, when you begin to follow Jesus, when you learn Jesus, your character will be changed and it'll become a natural for you to live as Christ lives. Verse 20 is really kind of interesting. He said, you know, when you learned about Christ, really and a lot of the scholars and the, the journal also make a big deal of this. They say, it doesn't really say you learn about Christ. What it really says is, when you learned Christ, there's a big difference between learning about Christ than learning Christ. Learning about Christ is just some sort of a distant thing. You know, I can learn about this microphone and I can learn all about it and I can know that it's this and this magnet and blah, you know, whatever kind of thing it is. Learn about it. But to learn Christ, the idea is when you get intimate with the very person of who Jesus is. 
when you become in first face-to-face contact, when you become fluent in his way of living, you've learned Christ. It's kind of like people tell me, I don't have this because I don't have any other languages. They said, listen, you know, when, you know, if you've got English, you know your English or whatever, and you're going to learn German or you're going to learn French or whatever it is. You know that you've really become fluent when you don't translate the word back into English, right? That's, that's the whole thing when a dog is just a dog. We don't translate into German, right? And so that's when you become, when you've learned the language, when you've literally learned the language, you just begin thinking in that language, right? Does that make, you've heard of all of that? Same thing to learn Christ. What he's saying is that you become so intimate with Jesus that you have learned Christ, that you've become fluent in Jesus. You don't have to translate it. It just is what it is. And our response becomes what Jesus' response is as we have learned Christ. As we do those things that we looked at two weeks ago about growing in our faith, growing up. And we learn Christ. And we pray. And we hear from Jesus. And we speak to Jesus. We learn him as we spend time with him. And then, he says what you need to do is you need to get off with the old. Off with the old. The first step is to learn Christ, be intimate with him. And as we do that, we'll begin to realize, man, you know what? I got some idols in my life. I've got some things in my life that I pursue that I put energy into, that I put time into, that I put money into, that don't look at all like Jesus. Social, power, sexuality, pleasure, who know, all kinds of different things. And we don't like to call them idols, but that's what he's saying. He's saying, Alan, there's things in your life that are idols and you look like them. And people see it in your actions. And so the first thing you've got to do is identify with the mind of Christ. Identify, you know what? This whole thing about me, I've got this idol of an easier life and a leisure life and it causes me to to ignore problems or to get angry or whatever. I I can't just deal with this end. What I've got to do is I've got to properly diagnose the problem. The problem is that I've got an idol in my life called pleasure. Maybe you've got an idol in your life called popularity. And, and you just kind of find yourself, you can't help yourself, but you realize, man, I try to please people more than I, than I please God. And maybe you struggle with pornography. It's not going to help you to just fight a little bit more against pornography. It's to recognize, you know what? I've got this idol in my life called sensuality, and I've got I to gotta put that into G. I've got to change that idol out. Maybe it's power. I don't know, there's all kinds of things. And, and so what, we, what he's saying is, listen, whatever those things is that used to drive your life, whatever those idols are that still have a bit of a hold of you, you can look at those actions, but don't just try and work a little bit harder on those actions. That's not going to cut it. What you've got to do is drive that idol out of your life by the power of the Spirit and allow God to be the idol, the God of your life that he claims to be. You've got to end on, start on that side of the equation. And in order to do that, Paul says you've got to make sure that your heart is soft. Because the easiest thing to do is when you start to have some thoughts about maybe I've got an idol in my life. Maybe my comfort or my popularity or my power or my wealth or my sexuality or who knows whatever it is. Maybe that's an idol. The first thing we do is, no, that can't be. I'm a Christian. And, and our, our hard heart wants to, to have that reality bounce off of us. 
so we don't have to really deal with it. Well, I struggle with this a little bit, but it's not an idol. <laughs> We've got to ask the Holy Spirit to ensure that our heart is soft enough that when he begins to, to speak to us and he begins to bring these things to our mind about, Alan, this is an issue. This is an idol in your life. This is, this is bigger than you just having a little bit of a struggle with eating too much or drinking too much or whatever the deal. This is an idol. And you've got to deal with it on that spiritual level. And you've got to ensure your heart is soft enough to hear the whisperings of the spirits so that he can begin to deal with those things. Because then he goes on, he says, listen, what you need to do is you need to change your mind. Did you pick that up in the passage? Change your mind. Actually, what it says is the spirit of your mind. And so the scholars have a bit of a, a, bit of a debate because they say, does it mean the attitude of your mind, as it said in the New International Version, or does it mean the Holy Spirit? For the Holy Spirit to govern and control your mind. And so, you know, they tussle back and forth. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, I always go to Gordon Fee. He's the guy, a theologian I trust. Trust Gordon Fee because he is a biblically grounded, sensitive, Pentecostal dude. So I think that that's the perfect combination. So I always go to Gordon Fee. That's what I go for. And Gordon Fee says this about this, the whole attitude of your mind. He says, the truth is, the emphasis is probably on your attitude. Have your attitude changed. But the Holy Spirit is hovering in the corners. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit that's active in our mind. He's talking about, listen, you've got to change your attitude, Alan. You've got to change your mind. But it's the Holy Spirit who's going to enable you to have that different changed mind, to understand that this is an idol and I need to deal with this in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's similar to Romans chapter 12. If you want to look at another passage where it's more obvious that it's the Spirit, transformation of your mind, so that we can become a living sacrifice to the God that we truly worship. And finally he says, and then you've got to put on the new. He kind of mixes the metaphors a little bit. He talks about putting on new clothes, but he also says, but because you're a new creation. It's that whole thing. You were Gentiles who pursued these idols, and you looked like those idols, but now you're a follower of Jesus. You have a new God, and so your entire being has been transformed into a new creation. Something that hasn't been there before. We looked at it in, in chapter 2. You can go back and if you want to look at the passage and maybe listen to the sermon again if you want on YouTube or whatever. But this whole thing about, about our new unity. Remember they talked about no Jew, no Greek, all that sort of stuff. That's new creation. And all of this meaning comes into being. That we get rid of those old idols that we used to look like. And we've embraced and we've learned Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts. And so now I've become transformed into a new creation. Into a new person by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I begin to live my life out as that new person. Because the only identity that really matters in the end is our identity in Christ. And out of our identity in Christ flows everything else that needs to match up and look like like the character of Jesus. All right. Let me see if I can kind of boil this down into a couple, few words. We start to look like those things we worship. And before Christ, before Jesus, we were transformed into the various priorities of our life, power, popularity, sexuality, pleasure, laziness, whatever, whatever it is. But now we worship Christ. 
And as we know him, as we learn him, as he becomes more and more our Lord, we begin to be transformed into his image and living the way of Christ becomes natural because we have been transformed. We have been changed. So when it comes to the ethical issues of our life that we're going to look at next week, you can see in verse 25 on. When it comes to the ethical issues in ourselves or in people who don't yet know Jesus, where we need to begin is not with the rules and regulations. Well, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do that. No, no, no. That's not where we begin. Where we begin is who is God? And who is the God of my life? And who is the God of your life? And do you want that God to be God of your life? Is that the character that you want to be? And it's easy to find out what our idols are. Where do we put our time, our energy, our money? Where do we seek our guidance, our decision? What makes us mad? What makes us sad? These are all things that are pointed towards, well, this is, this is kind of what's a God in your life. But as we learn Christ, as we worship him, and as we are transformed... The stuff that we'll look at next week, the rules and regs, so to speak, just become natural. It becomes natural to speak well of people instead of slander people. It becomes natural to treat women with dignity instead of being captured by pornography. It becomes natural to serve one another instead of trying to exert power over one another. Because we've been transformed into the God we worship, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as that occurs, people will begin to say of you, when it comes to this Christ-like life, oh, she's a natural. She's natural. So for this week, as we think about these things and living out our witness to Jesus, don't try to stick to the rules. Be transformed by learning Jesus. Almighty God, you know, the, the Christians, the church, we're, we're in a different, difficult spot socially. Because, you know, I think as I read those words and it just dawned on me how arrogant it sounds and how hypocritical it can sound. Um, and we realize that, that society and, and even we as Christians are more sensitive to this. And I suppose it'd be tempting for me to, you know, try a little harder, stick to the rules a little better. But the change that needs to happen is so much more foundational than that. I need to get rid of the idols in my life that, that hang around. I need to learn you, Jesus. I need to learn you. I need to strip off and strip away those idols, give proper diagnosis. This is a bigger deal than, than what I thought because it's not just a little struggle I'm having. I've got, a, I've got a false God in my life. 
And some of those gods, you know, we, we put nice words on them. Security, independence, likable. And a lot of those things are good, but there's a, there's a tipping point where it becomes an idol and it becomes transforming us into people that we don't want to be. So this week, Jesus, help us to learn new and to be transformed so that it becomes natural because a supernatural work is done by the power of your spirit where it becomes natural for us to live as you live, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, grow this community and be a part of this community and help this community thrive. It just won't be from a staff um, standpoint. It won't be in youth ministry. If you've ever been in youth ministry, <laughs> six years is a long time. <laughs> Um, so we just wanted to make sure that we came out so that you wouldn't be blindsided by us not being on staff anymore, uh, but that you would know that we are still um, active in this community and we still look forward to ministering and serving with you guys um, and worshiping a part, as a part of this community. If you guys have more questions or thoughts, you can come talk to us afterwards. Let's uh, stand with your the hand extension thing for this uh, Almighty oh, God, how we love Mark and Janair and Zeke. What a what what a blessing yes. they have been to so many people. And Father, I just want to thank you for the sensitivity of spirits that that though this is a hard decision for them because it's it's a tiring thing because they love the kids, they love the youth, they love the church or all of these all of these things and yet they they sense your holy spirit that you're leading into new uh, ventures and we just want to ask lord that you would bless them abundantly that you would open up the doors as a highway for them to travel a highway of blessing and of joy and of thanksgiving and father we pray that we would continue to enjoy their fellowship as they intend and for us, Lord, help us to continue to pour love unto these fine, fine servants of yours. Continue to anoint them, to continue to bless them, continue to allow them to bask in your love and our love. We pray through Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks, <laughs>